Cool. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome along on a, another beautiful Wellington morning. It's awesome to be here. It's awesome to see you all. Um, my name's Sam, for those who, who don't know me. Um, and if you've been here for the last number of weeks, we've been looking at this awesome theme, being raised with Christianity and being raised in Christ. Two very similar statements, but two very different positions. Um, and we've heard Greg testify over the last number of weeks. The difference between having been raised perhaps in a religious upbringing, having been raised maybe in a Christian home, versus the power of actually being raised in Christ. And so I'm keen to keep exploring this this theme this morning, um, and I've just got a couple of things that I'd like to release. Um, and so the labor could be short, it could be long, we're just going to have to see how we go. Um, at some stage I might need you to be involved uh, in, this, in this conversation, so don't get too comfortable. Um, but even if you're not involved, you should be involved already. Your ears are attentive to what it is that God is, is going to be uh, saying and doing this morning. You know, we don't just come to, to gather um, and to observe and watch almost like a show. You know, we come to actually participate in what it is that God wants to do in us. And this is what this in Christ life is all about. It's not a life that's external of us or something that we do. It's a life that we live in, live from, participate in. So when we're here, we're here presently present. We're here with Christ in us, looking to, to eat of him and his life. Is that cool? So I hope that that general acceptance means that that's the attitude that you've turned up with this morning. <laughs> well, it's going to be a good morning if that is the case. All right. So raised with Christianity and raised in Christ. You know, as we've been going over the last few weeks, I've had the awesome opportunity to just talk with different people about what they've been hearing, and there's been some overwhelmingly good feedback um, to what it is that, you know, that's been described as this distinction between being raised with Christianity and being raised in Christ. But the questions come up a number of times that, man, I've been raised in Christianity, but I'm just not really too sure what it means to have been raised in Christ. Does having been raised in Christianity mean that I'm potentially at a disadvantage to being raised in Christ? I've been raised in a Christian home. I've been indoctrinated with religious activity from the day I was born. I've lived a good Christian life. What does that mean for me? Am I excluded? Am I in a worse position? Especially when I hear about this overwhelmingly powerful life in Christ, this death to the old life and this being born again into this new and living way, this new life in Christ. I haven't experienced the, the sex, drugs and rock and roll life. I, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't even know when I became a Christian. I just happened to be one, you know. Does anyone relate? And so when we hear about this death to life, this being lost to being found, it's almost like it's unrelatable to us. And so the questions come up, you know, am I at a disadvantage having been brought up in a Christian home? Would it have not been better for me to have 
you know, gone through a whole range of heartache and trial and a rough upbringing. Maybe I should have just lived the sex, drugs and rock and roll life. You know, Paul intuits when he's speaking and or writing in, in Romans chapter 3, similar questions from those that he's talking to. You know, he Paul makes such a big deal about saying, guys, it's not about your upbringing. It's not about your religious activity. It's not about your church or your synagogue attendance. It's not about the things that you can do for God. It's about the indestructible life of Christ being formed in you, the, the, your, in your very core. It's about being born again of the incorruptible seed of the kingdom of God. And he makes such a big deal to say, guys, your religious activity has no bearing on your entering into this born again, resurrected life in Christ that it leaves people wondering, I've been brought up as a Jew. I've done all the right religious things. I've attended synagogue every day for my life. I've been at all the feasts. I've done all the right things. I've kept the law. Am I excluded from this new and living way? Am I excluded from this raised up life in Christ? And so they ask this question. They say, what value then is there in being a Jew? That's what they ask Paul in in Romans 3. What value then is there as having been raised in this religious upbringing with the traditions? And Paul, he doesn't say, guys, it's of absolutely no value at all. I can't believe that you even participated in. He doesn't say that. He says, actually, it's great in every respect. He says this. He says that you were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see, these people had been entrusted and had right in front of their face the testimony of God at every point in the way. They had the feasts, they had the Passover, so every year they celebrated a spotless, blemishless lamb being sacrificed for their sin. The Israelites coming out of Egypt um, you know, had miracle after miracle. The Red Sea opened up from them. Manna was falling from heaven that they could eat of to sustain their physical, natural bodies. What value then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in growing up in this religious way? He says it's great in every respect. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. At every point in the turn, they had a physical signpost pointing them to the one who was to come that was to be their very life. What value then is there in being a Jew? And the questions come up, what value then is there in being having, having been raised in a Christian home? If it's not about your upbringing, is there any value in being raised as a Christian? What do you think? What value is there? Well, Paul says to the Jews, to the people who were in a similar position, he says, actually, it's great in every respect. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. What value is there of having been raised in a Christian home? I can absolutely say that being raised in a Christian home is an absolute advantage to you. Did you know that? Are you thankful for that? See, being raised in a Christian home and being able to sit and hear and receive the message of the gospel, there is a continuous 
proclamation that you hear of God's goodness and who it is that he's to be inside of you. Coming along to, to these services, being here is an absolute advantage because you get to, to hear and see who God is. There's a, there's a testimony that's going on on a daily, a weekly basis. There is an absolute value in being raised in a Christian home. For me, it meant that my life didn't go off and descend into absolute carnage. I was brought up with good values. I was brought up with, you know, this sense of being nurtured and loved and cared for. It actually held my life. I'm so thankful for my parents coming and being part of a, a church family because of the, um, how would you say, the environment was the best possible environment for growth. And so the question, what value then is there in being raised in a Christian home? You know, when I was growing up in the youth group here at The Rock, there was a lot of people who were in a similar position to me, having grown up in a Christian home. And these people would see and hear the testimony. Normally we'd have guest speakers that would come in and they would share stories of having gone through potentially really dark and horrific things and stories of how Jesus had taken them out of that darkness and into light. And the question, the similar question came up, man, do I need to go and get Lost? Do I need to go and live in the world so that I can get a testimony? Maybe I should because I can't really appreciate what it is that they're sharing. I, I really can't relate to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle and how these people had gone, gone from being lost to being found. I can't relate to their testimony. And yet the t- your testimony, a testimony is never supposed to be your life story. No, the word testimony, it actually means witness. It means to, to be a witness of Christ. You know, it says in Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. In 1 John, uh, in 1 John 1 and 2, I'll just read this to you. He says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched, with our hands concerning the word of life. Now listen to this. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words again. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see, John here is not saying, guys, listen to my testimony, listen to my life story. He's saying, what I've seen and heard, I proclaim to you. See, his testimony wasn't his life story. It was his revelation of Christ. See, I heard the testimony of a man last week who had been raised from death to life. I wonder what you heard when you heard Greg share the story. Did you hear his story 
or did you hear his testimony? Did you hear what he had been through, or did you hear the revelation of Christ that he had entered into and received? See, if you heard his life story, you could think that his story and his life is completely unrelatable to yours. And in many ways it is, and it is for me. I haven't gone through a broken marriage. I haven't gone through the the things that he went through. And so that's nice for you, mate, but actually that doesn't really relate to me at all. I've been raised in a Christian home. Greg shared about having not been indoctrinated in churchianity, but having found and encountered Christ in a moment. I can't relate to his life story, but I can relate to his testimony. I can relate to the heartache. I can relate to the brokenness. I can relate to having come to a place of such despair in a completely and utterly different way than what he came to. You see, for me, it was actually my Christianity that led me to that place, not my living in the world. See, I had tried for so many years to live and serve and please God, and it came to the point where my absolute efforts, no matter what I did, always seemed to fall short or so I thought of his standards. And that produced in me such a deep anxiety. I was doing everything I could to soothe my tainted conscience because I knew how I should live, I just never could live. And it was the law which was, as Paul says, holy and righteous and good, his perfect standard, which absolutely floored me because I just could never live in the way that I tried to live. And my the harder that I tried, the more I was convicted of my inability to be who, who I heard and saw I should be and the way that I thought that I should live. And so my conscience nailed me at every point of the turn to say, really, it was, is that all I've got? Because I didn't have in me the living reality of Christ. And so when these people in the youth group were talking about not having a testimony, I thought, man, I don't have a testimony. I haven't gone through this period of of physical brokenness and darkness. I haven't run off. I haven't ran out of out of home, out of church, left it all behind. I don't have a testimony. And at the time, actually that statement was more true than what I realized. But I did not have a testimony because I hadn't been through horrific situations. I didn't have a testimony because I actually didn't have a living, revealed knowledge of Christ that had come from him. So you might be in one of those two categories here. You might have been raised in Christianity, in religious circles like I have, or you may have had no association with Christianity whatsoever and have come into this similar to the way that Greg described last week. Regardless of your way in, actually that is utterly and completely irrelevant. It's not about your way in, it's what you enter into. It's not about your life situation. It's about divine revelation of Christ in you. And so the testimony that you're to share is not your life story. 
It's your living knowledge of Christ. And that's what John is here describing, what we see, what we have touched, what we have tasted, these things we proclaim to you so that you might have fellowship with us. See, Greg and I do not have fellowship on a lot of levels. I am not at all really interested in Liverpool one bit. I ask out of politeness to hear how they're going, <laughs> but really I've stopped listening before they give the answer. <laughs> I'm not real. We don't really fellowship in fashion sense. You can see I, I didn't put on my tropical fruit shirt here to, to speak to you this morning. I'm not English. I'm Kiwi. I don't have an accent. I don't really get working out at the gym, why would you, when you can have a physique like this? <laughs> you see, there are so many levels that we don't have fellowship on, and we, the one thing that we certainly don't have fellowship on is our life upbringing. Our life situations are completely opposite, really. For all of you here, we may have a level of togetherness based on our life situation. For a lot of you here, you might be in a similar position to me. You might have been, yeah, I've grown up in a Christian home. Um, I don't like working out at the gym. You know, We can connect on so many different levels, and we can have fellowship on all of these different levels, but it's not the fellowship that John's talking about here. He's talking about fellowship of the Spirit that has nothing to do with your life situation, your upbringing, but everything to do with a joint shared revelation because you've eaten and participated in the same gospel, the same Christ, the same substance of him who you've received, not through any religious effort, but through revelation by the Spirit. You see, people can have fellowship on all sorts of things. You can have fellowship in your brokenness. You can have fellowship in your bitterness. You can have fellowship in your hard-heartedness. And in fact, you can have fellowship probably even with people, and you can probably find someone in this room that actually you're in, in, on your inside, you're frust- you don't even like what's being spoken or, or hear or, or proclaimed even from this pulpit. And you'll be able to find people that you can fellowship with. You can fellowship in your bitterness. If you're having a rough time, a frustrating time, who do you pick up the phone to call? Is it someone that's going to lift your eyes and bring you up out of what you're in and bring you into a position of true spiritual fellowship in the Spirit? Or do you pick up the phone to call someone that you can fellowship with and fellowship in your flesh? You see, that's how... Rumors and bickering and all sorts of chaos starts is that you find gratification and fellowship in the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong heartbeat. But we need to be elevated above that, out of being raised in Christianity, out of a fellowship that's with the earth. You know, Is it Paul, I think, that says, what fellowship does light have with darkness or or the temple of God with idols? What fellowship are we to have together as a community? 
It's not fellowship in our darkness. It's not fellowship in our natural relationships. It's not fellowship in your life situation. It's true spiritual participation, fellowship in Christ. You know, this fellowship means that you can instantly have a connection with people that aren't of your similar life age and life stage. Who do you hang out with? Where is your, where, where do you find your source of fellowship? Because if it's, if you can only connect with those that are similar to you, it's probably not fellowship or it's not fellowship of the spirit. It might be fellowship of an earthly kind and that's right and good. And I have lots of friends that are of my own age and of my own life stage. But as the body of Christ, we're to break down all natural earthly divides and come to a position of fellowship in Him. Where we can, where our connection isn't based on life situation, but joint participation in the gospel together. When you have revelation, you have fellowship. You can be inspired, encouraged, amazed by someone's story. It can be the most incredible thing to you. But if you hear it through a life story and not a testimony, you will completely write yourself off from that. You, you will separate yourself from what God is wanting to do. You won't be able to have fellowship. You have mutual joint connection. You see in Luke 7 verse 47, there's this parable of Jesus. It's a parable of the two debtors. And there's this dialogue between a Pharisee and a sinner. And it goes something like this. Oh, let me find it. Luke 7, 47. I'll read you the... I'll just give you a summary of the story. So the parable of the two debtors. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee called Simon and this lady who's a sinner. And Simon is all up in arms about this lady's actions. And Jesus says this to her. He says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been, uh, have been forgiven for she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. They, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So you've got a, you've got a Pharisee, one who was raised and indoctrinated in religious tradition. And then you have a woman who was raised in the completely other way as a sinner. And so there's an issue going on here, where, and Jesus is addressing the Pharisee's heart. And he says to her, uh, to, uh, to him, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, it can be easy to hear these scriptures. I certainly heard them growing up as a lady who's a sinner was in desperate need of being saved, was absolutely and completely lost. 
and was taken in by Jesus and plucked out of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. And this Pharisee has a bit of an issue with that. And Jesus addresses him by saying, saying these words, For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now it can be easy to think that this lady, having been a sinner, has been forgiven so much. And that's the reason why she loves much. Is because she's a sinner and she's been forgiven of all of these things. Whereas the Pharisee thinks, man, I'm all, I'm not that bad. And because I'm not that bad, the forgiveness that I've received is only little. That's why I don't really love God that, that much because I haven't experienced what she has. My sin hasn't been as big. And so therefore I have not experienced the same grace, the same redemption, the same story of out of darkness and into light. But actually that's not the heartbeat of the story at all. And that it's not a matter of what level of sin you've been involved in because if you miss one law, you've missed them all is what Paul says. It's not a matter of the duration of your sin, the bigness of your sin, because actually one sin is just as bad as the other. The issue with sin is not the sin. It's where the sin flows from, which is the Adam nature that we were all born with. And so he's saying, guys, it's not a matter of the level of your sin. It's the it's the a matter of the depth of your revelation of how much you've been forgiven how much you've been redeemed. Your revelation of me is where this all starts and ends. If you've been a sinner, been a lost person, having been raised completely outside of Christianity or having been raised as a Pharisee, having been raised in the church, having been raised knowing all the right things to do and doing your absolute best to keep them, that has absolutely no bearing. It's a matter of the quality and the source of your revelation, not your situation. So I put here, being raised with Christ is not a matter of your life situation, but of spirit-birthed revelation. There's a really key parable, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. So if you've got your Bibles... You can turn there. Luke 15, verse 11. Luke 15, verse 11. The parable of the prodigal son. Now, I'm not going to read the whole parable because I think that many of you have probably, if you've been raised with Christianity, you probably know the story inside and out. It's a classic Christian story, right? The parable of the prodigal son. So a man has two sons, and those two sons are in the same household. And one of those sons comes to the father, I'm sure you know the story, and asks that the father gives his inheritance to the son. The son takes the inheritance, and he runs off. He takes the the possessions that his father's given him, the money, and he goes and spends it on wild living, the Bible says, on partying it up, living this lifestyle of being the lord and boss of his own life. He goes and lives 
as much as his pleasures desire. And the other son stays put, stays at home. He's quite a good boy. He's doing the right thing. He's still there in the father's house. And the son who's gone off the rail, so to speak, finally at one day comes to his senses. And he's living with pigs and he comes to the realization and he's like, man, I would be better off in my father's house living as a servant than I would be in the position that I am in here. He comes to this point and he makes a well-reasoned decision. It's like, man, my life sucks. My life would be so much better if I just went back to my father. And so it says this in verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, here's the lines that he had rehearsed, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and uh, and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. What awesome mercy, hey? What love of a father whose son, when he went astray, in a heartbeat, opened up his arms and welcomed him back in. And yet, with this son, in the parable in my Bible, it's called the parable of the prodigal son, makes a big point of the son who had been lost and has now been found, and rightfully so. The mercy is unbelievable. The love, the heartbeat of a father who would take back in a son who had gone astray and gone away. But from the son's perspective, he made a well-rationed, well-reasoned decision to say, my life that sucked, it would be so much better to come into another life that was slightly less sucky than that life. He says these rehearsed lines, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer called uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, he recognizes his need to turn from the life that he was living. He recognizes his need for this John the Baptist message that we heard about last week. He, he recognized that he needed saving forgiveness from his sins. And the father is like, man, I am so all about that. I am so about you. You've you've recognized the mess that you've made and you've come back to me. You know, God is so good that even regardless of the motive of our heart, he accepts us and welcomes us back in. And yet we don't know any more about that son than that. 
there's no other mention of the son further on in the parable. We don't know what his life was like after that. The last thing that comes out of his mouth is him saying, my father, I'm just willing to be your servant. Now, this situation could have gone in one of either two ways. That interaction with his father, the the depth of his father's mercy towards him could have done this. It could have had such a profound impact on his life that in view of the mercy that he's received, he lays down his life as a living sacrifice, letting go of his old ways, not just what he was doing, not just the situation that he was living in, but the very operating system that he lived from. In view of God's mercy, the love that was bestowed on him, that could have seriously altered his life and set him on another course. Or he could have remained, having been forgiven, gone from death to life, having been lost and now found, maintained that same posture and attitude of, oh, I'm just a forgiven sinner. Father, I'm only worthy to be your servant. It could have gone that way. We we just don't know. What if he then from that point did not deal with the attitude that says, you're my father, but I'm a slave to you. You see, in Galatians 4, let me just find the scripture. Four verse one it says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ from at all from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So what's Paul saying here? He says, now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. What is he saying? As long as the son remains immature, he's a son, but he lives as a slave. He has everything open and available to him but lives with a slave-like mentality, maybe having been forgiven, but having not received the fullness of life that comes from a cry, a heart cry, Abba, Father. We don't hear this heart cry from the Son. I'm not saying it's either or. I'm saying we don't know what happens in the situation. What we do know is that there's a Father who loves him in this position. Now, I'm not trying to redefine the scriptures that you've been brought up with your entire life. What I'm, the point that I'm making 
is that this parable is not so much just a parable about someone who was lost and was found. It's a parable about two sons, both who for a time lack revelation, that has them living as slaves when they were always predestined to live as sons. And a loving father who's covering and whose heart is for them at every point in the turn, who will have mercy, who will cover, and who will give every opportunity for these sons who were immature to enter into the fullness of life that he has for them. Now, what about this other son? Let me just flick back. What about this other son, son number two? Verse 25, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to him, Father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I never neglected a commandment of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who came, who was devoured and who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, and you killed and fattened the calf for him. And the father, and he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was not, uh, and was lost and has been found. Two very different positions, hey. One who was lost, as lost as lost can be, and the other who had remained in the father's house, who had been raised in Christianity, who had been raised in this awesome environment. But the environment that he was raised in, being nurtured by the love of the father, had not produced in him what the environment was supposed to produce. See, like I said, this is not just a story about one son that was lost and had become found. It's a story about two sons who for a time both lacked revelation that had them living not as sons but as slaves. And the second son, he sees the party that's being thrown for the first son and he's a bit frustrated about it. And the father doesn't give him a slap with the jandal on his backside, he says this to him, he reminds him of who he is. He says, son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. What is he saying? My son, you've seen me throw one party for your younger brother, but all that I have is yours. If you wanted to, we could party it up every night. He's saying, what you have seen your younger brother taste of in a moment, you could be living and have had the opportunity to be living from on a daily basis. Now your brother has that same opportunity that you have. He's been covered. He's been brought in. So we have two brothers, one who's been raised in Christianity, one who 
has for a time has become lost, but both brothers in desperate need, not of a change in their situation, but of revelation that would bring them into the fullness of life that was available for them. You see, as the church having been raised in Christianity, we can have that same attitude that the second son had. Our attitude can be, God, why are you not doing this for me like you're doing for someone else? And in fact, someone else's gain actually threatens us, particularly their spiritual gain. You see someone else who's received something from God, and instead of wanting to have fellowship with them and celebrating the fact that God has done an incredible, miraculous work in them, it's actually repulsive to you because you think that their gain is your loss because Christianity to you is more a matter of your reputation than your revelation. You're more concerned that someone else looking better makes you look worse because them excelling means it looked like actually you're living a little bit apathetic. Actually, someone else's growth is the best thing that is possible for you. Why? Because if someone else grows and excels in God, if someone else is growing in their gifting, everything that God has given is not just for you, it's for us. That's what happens in a household. Someone else's toys become your plaything. (laughs) Daisy's silky blanket now is in Levi's possession. The two-year-old posting toy is now the most hip thing on the block. I'm joking, but I hope that you hear what I'm saying. We should be absolutely celebrating when someone else is growing in God because what the growth in God is not just about them. All of a sudden, they have more that they can contribute to you. So don't see someone else's growth as a hindrance. See it as a help. This is what this raised up position does. Why? Because all of a sudden, you're not looking to find your identity in the things that you do and in your reputation. You're looking now for fellowship with those who share the same heartbeat as you. You're looking for those who, like in this story, the son who was lost and now has been found. What if the son had said, Oh my goodness, I know what it means to be found, not because I did what you did, but because I know the depth of my lostness without my father, my brother. Can we, let's celebrate, let's fellowship, let's join together and thank and praise God for what he's starting to do in you because what he's doing in you, he's done in me and let's participate and join together. That's what Sunday morning service should be, right? A collection, the body of Christ coming to praise and glorify and thank him for what he's done. Not coming to worship. We already worship. We live from worship. We've received mercy and our lives are laid down as a living sacrifice. So when we come, we come and we join together in fellowship to proclaim and testify the goodness of who he is. And when someone else proclaims, it it brings out of our spirit a yes and amen because what he's doing in you, he's doing in me, not because of your situation, but because we've entered in through revelation 
into what it is that he's doing in each of us, having been not just raised in Christianity and coming to church services, but having been raised together in Christ. Man, it is a different gospel. It's a new and living way. This thing is to be so radically different to what we were brought up in, attendance and reputation. And I wonder if they see me as a good Christian. All of that stuff is just rubbish in comparison to what it is that he's looking to do in and through us. So as Christians, having been raised in Christianity, we're the, to be the ones who have living testimony of who God is, not because of our life situation, but because of our living revelation of the Christ that we've tasted and seen and known. Now there's someone who knew this better than anyone else, and his name was Paul. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. And just take a drink. So Paul knew this better than anyone else. I'm just going to read this. This is Philippians chapter 3. The title is The Goal of Life. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Does that sound like the kind of praise and worship glorifying him that we're just looking at? Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which which comes from God on the basis of faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Powerful words, eh, from a man who knew what it meant to be raised in all religious upbringing. Listen to this. Although I myself have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So what is he saying? He's saying, guys, I was it. I was the religious man. He's not saying, guys, I did not, he's not saying, guys, I was out as a Gentile in the, in the world having no concept of God whatsoever. He's saying, guys, I was raised in Jewish religious tradition. Not only was I raised in it, I was the epitome of what a raised with man looks like. He says this, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. This guy is the equivalent of someone who has been raised with Christianity to the highest level. He was raised with Judaism. He was engrossed and ingrained in Jewish tradition. He was doing absolutely everything that he knew to do to live for God, to serve God, and to please the God that he knew. He was an incredible religious standing. He was a Pharisee. His entire reputation rested on his ability to be one who lived and kept the law in the way that he knew. He is someone who has been raised with. But he says... This, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This guy was not a guy who was living as a Gentile out in the world. He says this, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found seriously lacking, found so far from it, found not even close to nailing it. No, he says this, as to the righteousness which was in the law, found blameless. Blameless. As to the righteousness found in the law, found Blameless. He kept the, what is he saying? He kept the law to the greatest degree that was humanly possible for a man. Having been raised with Christ, uh, sorry, with Christianity, having been raised in this religious upbringing, and I'm, I'm switching using Christianity, not that he was raised with Christianity, but I hope you're seeing the, the link in the typology. Having been raised with Judaism, He was absolutely devoted to living for God with every ability that he had to give. As to the law, found blameless. I wonder if any of you were in that position, having been raised with Christianity, being able to live a good and right Christian life in all respects. 
You've attended church. You even read your Bible, sometimes even at home. You attend a discipleship group on weekdays. You do all the right Christian things by the Christian law that we would expect. He says, I am the man who kept all of those things. I was the epitome of how a good Jewish person should live. As to the law, found blameless. Yet the same man says these almost contradictory words. He says, but actually, I was the worst of all sinners. Hold on a second, Paul. Are you somehow out of your mind? Are you schizophrenic? Are you, you say that as to the law, as to the standards of God, you were found blameless, but then you say that you were the worst of all sinners. Well, maybe it was because Paul was persecuting Christians and throwing them in prison and persecuting them to the point of death. Well, yes, that is a pretty, killing someone is a pretty significant sin. But what about Hitler? What about Pol Pot? What about all of these other sinners doing all of these horrific things throughout all of the century? And Paul says that I, not them, not the Romans who are slaughtering hundreds of thousands of more people than what I'm doing. As to the law found blameless, he says, I am the worst of all sinners. What is he saying? He's saying that I knew the depth of my absolute position without God. It says he was the worst of all sinners, but he knew by revelation who he was without God. And it was that revelation that made him say, I'm the worst of all sinners, not because of the quality or the content of his sin, but the level of revelation that he entered into of where he was and where God, God had got him to be. Who he had been born into in Adam. And who he was born again and raised up with in Christ. See, Paul was saying, as to the law, found blameless. Yet I was the worst of all sinners. He's saying, guys, it's not a matter of your situation. It's about your Revelation. And so for us having been raised with Christianity, we can enter into that same revelation and have the same testimony as Paul. You can have been a good Christian your entire life. It doesn't disqualify you for being, from being raised up in Christ, but it will. If you never come to the point of realizing that it's not a matter of your life situation, don't use that as an excuse. It's a matter of your living revelation. That like Paul, you can say, I'm the worst of all sinners, not because of the quality or content of your sin, but because of the revelation of the sinful nature and condition, that just the natural man that you were born into in contrast and in comparison to who you've been raised up in and what you've received in Christ, which is now your reference point. 
You have tasted of the heavenly life, the raised up life. You have tasted of what it means to be genuinely born again of the Spirit. And having tasted and received this new life, it makes your old life look like absolute rubbish. He says, I count all things as loss. And the things that he's counting as loss are not the sinful things. He's saying the things that I was counting as loss are my religious qualifications, my ability, my reputation based as being a Pharisee, my ability to keep the law, my ability to live for God, striving to be a good person, to do the right thing, to keep up appearances. It's that very thing that he says, I've counted that as loss. I am no, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified not just to the things I did. I have been crucified. My operating system, my way of living, my way of trying to please God and my own ability, that has come to a staggering halt. And I've received a revelation knowledge of Christ, this new and living way. Having received mercy, having received Christ, now I live from God. I live from mercy and I still live for God, but not outside of living from him. You see, having received mercy, he now lays down his life as a living Holy sacrifice for, from, through, and to Christ. And that can be us as a church, those who have been raised with Christianity. You can have, through revelation, a living testimony, not because of what you've been through, but because of what you've received and experienced that draws a line and a divide in the stand in the sand, a line in the sand between everything that you were raised with, everything that was earthly and natural, every not just bad thing, but every good thing, every attribute that you have, everything that you think that you can do to help God please him, serve him. To have that all fall to the ground and to receive Christ, death and resurrection. It's the message of the gospel. All right, that brings me to my second point. <laughs> Not nailing it this morning. I think let's just, are you guys all right? And keep going for a little bit more. All right, I've put here, being raised in Christ is not a matter of having Christ as part of your life, but as your very life itself. Paul knew the mercy of God, and in the view of that mercy, he laid down his life as a living sacrifice. He didn't try and serve God anymore in the same way that he had been. He was, an incredi- he was incredibly effective in living for God, but his internal wiring was from a completely different place. He now lived from God, from mercy, from the life that he had received. And then his life was an expression of this from God, raised up with Christ position. It was a new way of thinking, of living, of seeing, of breathing. 
He no longer had God added onto his life as a religious thing. He had God as the centerpiece and the source of his life. So I put here, being raised in Christ is not a matter of having Christ as part of your life, but as your very life itself. Now, if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. And Paul describes what this life looks like. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, the title of my Bible is Put on the New Self. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, Paul is describing a reality that he had entered into. Now to him, being religious was not just part of his life. Being in Christ was his very life. He didn't just have religious activity as being part of his life and yet still in his deepest core, being the source, being the one who was trying to live and to to operate. Uh, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, I've talked a lot about religious things, but this could be in anything. And I feel like the best way to describe it is potentially by an example. I said there was going to be some uh, participation involved. So I, I just need an, a couple of volunteers. Uh, people who don't normally volunteer would be awesome. Anyone willing to, a couple of people willing to, to volunteer? Now you volunteer for absolutely everything. <laughs> people who don't normally volunteer. Sorry, Shirley. People who don't normally volunteer, just need a couple of people. Thanks, Steve. I'll just move this out of the way. All right. Do you want to just tell us, what's your name, mate? I'm Steve. Steve Graham. This is Steve. Pretty great guy, right? Great, great guy. Steve, classic Kiwi bloke, wouldn't you say? Nice guy. Real nice guy. And this is Steve, and this is Steve's life. But Steve, you know, as he's going through life, thinks, oh, you know, I, maybe I, I'm a little bit lonely. Maybe I'll probably just need to add some things to my life. So Steve maybe thinks, oh, maybe I'll, I'll add a wife. Is there someone who wants to come and volunteer? Who's Steve's, who's Steve's wife? Not here. No, I just... Yep, come on up. This is not Steve's life, by the way. This is just, this is just a typology, you know. We're not trying to matchmake here. Alright, so now we've got Steve. Steve was in the beginning. In the beginning was Steve. And now Steve has added, now Steve's added a wife to his life. Now, just as natural, normal people do, they maybe think, oh, maybe might add kids. Is there someone who can 
come and fulfill the role as Steve ki- Steve's kids here. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> Steve's kids. And then somewhere along the line, Steve's like, man, my life is not really that great. I, maybe I should become a Christian. So Steve becomes a Christian and he adds Christianity onto his life. Is there someone who can come and, is there, is there someone who can come and add Christianity onto his life? Jaden, you've got a Bible in front of you. Bring your Bible, mate. <laughs> Steve adds Christianity onto his life. Now, things are going relatively well. He's got his wife, he's got his kids, he's got his Christianity, but then he gets a new job. Is there someone who can come and uh, be Steve's job? Steve Jobs. <laughs> Look at that, eh? That wasn't even planned. Can someone come and be Steve's job, please? Put me out of my misery. Thank you, Sarah. There you go. There's the iPhone. There's Steve Jobs. There's Steve's job. All right. So in the beginning was Steve. And Steve has now added a number of things onto his life. But as these things have been added... Man, there's a lot to manage, eh, Steve? You've got to look after your wife. You've got to take care of your kids. And now you've somehow got to find time for God. And in amongst all of that, maybe even some quiet time. And now this new job is really pushing me over the edge. So Steve's starting to feel the weight of his life, right? He has added to his life. And things are starting to get a bit tough, wouldn't you say? Life is just starting to get a bit hard. It's not like things are are bad. It's just busy. And so this new job has now meant that Steve's starting to have to think about how he prioritizes. He's only got 24 hours in a day, and he's got to take care of all of these different things. So in the beginning, Steve, his job, his new job has just, man, Steve is like, man, I used to have all of this time for God, but now my new job has actually taken away my priority. My time with God has shrunk down a little bit, mate. <laughs> so in the beginning was Steve, and Steve has added all of these things to his life. But the job has pushed him over the edge. And now his Christianity and his time with God and his Bible reading and his discipleship group is starting to suffer. He's starting to have to prioritize. Man, the kids are starting to get a bit ruckus. So the time with his wife is now starting to decay. And Steve is now having to make decisions on what is the most important thing in his life. He used to think that God was the most important thing, but then the job came along. And something started to chop and change. His wife used to be the most precious thing to him. But then his kids came along and they started. Steve is having to juggle priorities left, right, and center to keep his life going. But this life was never supposed to be Steve's life. You see, this is the raised with Christ position. This is how, to be honest, most of Christian people around the world live. In the beginning was Steve. In the beginning was me and my life. And I'm just a good guy and I'm just going through life and I just add on things to my life as I go because that's just what you do in life. And because in the beginning was Steve 
and he's added on all of these things, he's now needing to start to juggle the things that he's added on as he's starting to rejig the priorities in his life to fit around Steve. And he's adding different weight to all these things. You see, for different people, it's different things. For some, the wife's more important. For some, actually, Christianity is the most important thing. So Steve starts to get a bit passionate, and his Christianity starts to come to the floor. Come round, take the, take the pole position, the second pole position. He becomes a Christian, and the Christianity starts to take off. But then all of a sudden, he has another kid. You come back, come back. And the Christianity just gets pushed back. Now, all of a sudden, Steve is frustrated that the kids are taking away from his relationship with God. All of a sudden, the work is taking away from his relationship with God. See, those who are incredibly zealous for God in the way that Paul described living for God, life situations will take away from living for God because they suck your time. For those who are apathetic, the kids, the job, the wife, they're the things that will take away your priority. But regardless, the heartbeat is still the same because in the beginning was Steve. Thanks, guys. You can stay up here. Don't go away too quick. That's only position number one. In the beginning was Steve. That is the raised with Christ position. Might just grab this whiteboard. A raised with Christianity position. Can somebody just give me a lift, Tessa? This is the raised with Christianity position. You've got, in the beginning, was Steve, plus his wife, plus his kids, plus his job, plus, was there anything else? One. Plus his, plus his, Christ, plus his religious Christianity. Now, are there any geniuses in the room that can add up? Was that? Come on, guys. Put me out of my misery. Five, all right. This is Steve's life. And he's having to think about what the priorities are in his life and chop and change based on his raised with Christianity position. But he is still in control of his life. Now, this is what the raised in Christ position looks like. Is there any volunteers to be Christ? Paul, you're being called out, mate. You must be doing something right, eh? Must be doing something right. Come on, mate. In, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was Christ. Now we see here in this verse, it says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, previously Steve was adding to his life. He was the starting point and he was adding to his life. The raised in Christ position puts your starting point in a completely different place. You are no longer the starting point and source of your life he is. He is no longer 
part of your life. Your life is now dead and you are hidden with Christ and God. So when Christ appears, it says that we will appear with him in glory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. You see the divine oneness in the Trinity. And so here we've got Christ. And so this is what the raised with Christ position, uh, raised in Christ position looks like. Steve, can you just come and stand behind him, mate? Now, Paul can smile because he's on camera, and the camera's probably going to get the only view of this, really. But just imagine you're looking front on. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God. And now Steve has come to the absolute end of himself. For the first time, he realizes that living for God and trying to live in this rat race of juggling all of these different things and trying to add all of these different things onto his life has absolutely brought him to the edge and to the end. And he finally finds repentance. He reaches the point of deep brokenness, not brokenness because of his life situation, brokenness because of the revelation that he's entered into. And he's died. Now his life is hidden with, in Christ with God. Because his life has been hidden in Christ, the way that he lives and operates is an entirely different way, an entirely different wiring an entirely different operating system from what from the way that he used to live. And so all of a sudden, instead of adding on all of these things and all of these things taking away from his relationship with God, he has come into God and the things take on an entirely different form. So maybe his kids just want to step step forward. His wife, his job, and even his, the things that he does for God. So now the equation of Steve's life, the underpinning operating system of Steve's life is entirely different. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was God, was Christ. I thought this was the good pen. In the beginning was the Word. And now Steve's, Steve has died. He hasn't incorporated God into his life He's not looking for God to fix his life. He's not adding to add God onto his life. Steve has died and his his life is hidden in Christ with God. And his life being hidden in Christ with God, he now is multiplying. You know, it says this in Genesis. It says, be fruitful and add. He says, that man and woman were created in the image of God. Man and woman were created in the, in the image of God. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion and subdue the earth. Interesting that he doesn't say in the beginning, or he doesn't say, um, he doesn't say, 
um, be fruitful and add to your life. He doesn't even say be fruitful and add Christianity to your life. He says be fruitful and multiply. What's being multiplied? The image of Christ through everything now that Steve's a part of. So now the things that Steve's involved in are no longer being added to his life and taking away from. They are reinforcing through multiplication who he now is raised up to be. The equation of his life is entirely different. Are there any geniuses in the room that can do the sum for me? One. So as Steve now adds to his life because he's dealt with the issue, the kids weren't his issue, the wife wasn't his issue, his own ability to serve God wasn't his issue, he was the issue. That he was the source and center of his life and for the first time he's found repentance. And he has died, his operating system on the inside has died and now his life is hidden in Christ with God. Now he's going to be fruitful and multiply because the equation of his life, instead of adding to, which really is taking away from, every time he now adds because he's died, because he's got a new way of living, only reinforces the raised up life, the inner life that, that he's been born again into. Now all of a sudden Steve's Kids add to Steve, they don't take from him. Steve's kids are now an opportunity to express the divine nature through an earthly environment, through an earthly relationship. Steve's household now is a testimony of the heartbeat of the father because Steve's no longer trying to juggle and hold things together. He's living from this new life and so his Kids, his relationship with his kids is now a divine expression they don't take away from. They add two. Steve's wife is no longer the issue anymore. Steve doesn't think that it's better to be out on the corner of a roof than to share a house with a nagging wife. He's not really thinking that way anymore because his wife is not his problem anymore. He sees his marriage covenant as being a covenant that was given by God. It says what God has given, let no man separate. What God has given. And he is able to fulfill his role in his marriage covenant because now he's living for a marriage covenant that's heavenly and eternal. He's got an eternal perspective like we see in here. He says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. His mind is not on his wife's issues. His mind is on Christ, and he's able to love her because he can, because he's living from this new and living way, because the equation of his life is now entirely different. So his wife, all of a sudden, actually adds to him. She doesn't take from him. Steve's job (laughs) was not on purpose. Steve's job all of a sudden is not a daily grind anymore. He's not trying to find a way to somehow find a better job or a job where there's more Christians or to stop working so that he can do what he wants or even stop working so that he can go and spend more time with God or 
Steve's job is now an environment for him to radiate the goodness, the expression of God, to be a fragrance, to be an aroma of Christ here on the earth. His job is not a grind because he's died and his life is now hidden in Christ with God. And Steve's, what were you? Oh, Christianity. Steve's Christianity all of a sudden is not something that he tacks onto his life as something that comes and goes. You know, when you look at Steve, you don't actually even see, see, see Steve. You see Christ. You don't see his religious devotion. You only see Christ. He's no longer adding Christianity onto his life as a separate element that takes away from him and adds to him, that soothes his conscience and adds to him when he's doing the right thing, but condemns him and rejects him when he's having a bad day because actually it's not him living anymore. It's Christ in him living and his expression of religious devotion flows from an entirely different operating system. It's Christ in him. He's now able to lay down his life having received mercy as a living sacrifice. Can we please have a round of applause for our great contestants? I hope that you see the picture. Sometimes a picture's worth a thousand words, and I'm very mindful of the time, but I just want to say this, that in all the laughing and all the jokes, this is a very real thing that we have to wrestle with and grapple with as the church. You know, we are doing a fun example, but the reality is that many people in the church live from a life that's divided, chopped up, having to prioritize, and it absolutely will kill you and suck you dry, especially if you're a Christian. You see, the world have a hard enough time living for themselves, let alone adding Christianity onto your life, which not only, to be honest, adding Christianity onto your life will genuine, generally take away from your life because you'll live with a sense of guilt and shame and condemnation. You won't even be able to enjoy living for you. You'll enjoy living for you for a time, but then you'll get condemned and guilty because you're not living up to a standard. It is the most horrific way to live. Guys, it's time for the equation of our lives to take a completely different form. It's time for us to, to die and for him to become the one who sits on the throne of our hearts. For him to no longer be something that is tacked on, added on, but for him to be the very source of our lives, our innermost being, the person, Christ in us that we live in and live from. So I think I might leave it there, but I'm just going to pray, and I'm more than happy to have questions and, and dialogue after. Um, but take away what you've heard, and don't, like I said, don't hear the situation, don't just hear the typology, hear the testimony, hear what it is that God is speaking. Hear His new and living way, and and allow Him to be the one who who comes in, cuts and divides like a sword penetrating your core, penetrating the way that you've lived and to birth life on the inside. Is that cool? So, Father, I pray that you would become the very source of our life, that you would be our breath. 
Father, that the equation of our life would not begin with us. Father, I pray that we would find repentance. You say in Acts that, that you granted the people that were there repentance leading to life. Father, I pray that you grant your church repentance. Father, repentance not from the bad things that we've done, not from the situations that we found ourselves in, Father, but repentance from being the source of our life. Father, from the nature that we were born into an Adam. Father, I pray that the sword of your word would come and cut and divide, that new life would be birthed and formed on us on our inside. Father, I thank you for your absolute faithfulness to cover us. Father, you are just so for us in every way. It's your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And Father, I thank you that you're so patient with us, longing and yearning for us to enter into the fullness of what we have available in and with you. So thank you for what you're doing. And we pray this in your awesome, powerful name. Amen.